Welcome to the John Wesley Fellows Podcast, the show where John Wesley Fellows have the opportunity to sit down with experts in a variety of fields to talk about issues and topics that are top of mind in today's community. The centerpiece of a foundation for theological education, the Wesley Fellowship Program helps identify, train, and support scholars who are trained in the classical Wesleyan tradition and committed to traditional innovation. For more information, visit aftesite.org. On today's episode, Dr. Brian Yike interviews Dr. Ben Witherington of Asbury Theological Seminary and Dr. Kevin Watson with Emory University about church leadership in the days of COVID-19 and how the church can and should respond in the wake of this pandemic. Enjoy today's episode. Kevin, it is great to be with you today. I'm um, looking forward to our conversation. And um, uh, today we're going to talk about kind of a, a topic that I think is on a lot of people's minds in terms of, you know, um, the pandemic that's going on, the church, leadership, um, some of those kinds of questions. And so the first one, we'll just dive right in. The first one that I pitched to you guys um, really surrounds, you know, what is at stake as the church continues to respond uh, to this pandemic. Um, so Ben or Kevin, either one of you wanna jump in first, feel free. Well, it's already clear from the past five, six months that uh, the very life of small churches in various places is at stake because a lot of them are just not going to reopen. Yeah. So the landscape of ecclesiology is changing as we speak, and uh, and really and truly, churches, whether they're hierarchical in nature or they're more Baptist in flavor, are going to have to reconnoiter about how to do church in various ways. And the second thing I would say is, for the older folks who were perhaps more susceptible to this virus, um, at least in my church they've been very reluctant to go back to church, even though we have church with social distancing, et cetera. Mm. And um, they're just not going to show up in person. So I've been teaching Sunday school on Zoom now for six months and that's going fine, but it's not the same as do not neglect to gather yourselves together at all. So my worry would be for especially some of those people is that they don't really understand the difference between actual koinonia when the church gathers and worships together. I mean, it's congregational worship, not you singing to yourself in your study. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm afraid that we've done such a poor job in Protestantism anyway with explaining the nature of the church and the nature of worship and those kinds of things that by default, a lot of people will think, well, this is far more convenient. I can sit at home on my bed <laughs> right. and drink my coffee and wear my shorts, not have to get to dress up, not have to drive off to church and get the same benefit. And the problem with that is that then in fact, they are treating church as purely a consumer experience like watching Mm -hmm. television. And that is not what worship 
is intended to be. It is not intended to be the performance of the few on the platform for the couch potatoes for Jesus at home. And so there are major problems with what's going on and how we're going to recover from this and get people mm. back on the case of being actually people who gather for congregational worship. Yeah, it's perhaps exacerbated that whole consumeristic sort of sort of approach. Kevin, what are, what are your thoughts as we Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with, with, with what Ben has said. I, I think that in a sense it's revealed to the church kind of where it's at and, and a lot of it's not pretty. Um, I think a lot of it is um, things we already had an inkling of before, but the, along the lines of, of what he said, I think one of my concerns has been, you know, I, I think about kind of, are we making the right kind of mistakes? I think in a season like this, you're bound to make mistakes, but um, mm. I often have, have had a sense of discouragement in this season that the, the mistakes the church is making are the wrong kind of mistakes. Um, and I think that it's, it, it, it reveals kind of the, this consumerist Christian model um, the you know there even the way the the, the conversations go it, it's really hard to um, to sort of challenge or press in on the importance of of a passage like Hebrews ten twenty five and to to you know to emphasize that the gathering of of, of the body of Christ in person really matters and um, some of the ways I've tried to engage that it's been interesting to me to even hear people uh, pushing back against that basic notion that they're sort of like. Mm-hmm. You know, we have been meeting together and there, there, there are actually people who are making sustained arguments that there really is no difference between the way that the, the church was meeting before the beginning of the pandemic and, and what we're doing now. And um, that seems to me not only to be incorrect, but it seems to be dangerously incorrect. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it, it reveals just how malformed, how poorly formed um, generations of 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 Christians have been to not, to not be able to understand the role of the incarnation um, in, uh, in the basic kind of application and lived living out of the Christian faith, um, both in the beginnings of, of, you know, the, the word becoming flesh, but also how, how that looks and works itself out um, for us. And so for me, part of what's at stake is, is figuring out how to help um, the church to, to begin to kind of, you know, rebuild theologically, um, both doctrine and discipline kind of in the ruins of the church. When you sort of just look around and see, um, what to me sometimes looks like practical atheism, um, and, and other times just looks like, you know, just theological malnourishment. How do you begin Mm -hmm. to kind of, um, help, help to put things back together and help point the way back to, um, to the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, in in addition, I've been thinking about the parallels between online education and online church. And one of the things that you learn from uh, almost entirely online education is you, if you're dealing with ministerial candidates, you can't evaluate their spiritual formation Mm. just by teaching them online and reading their transcripts and their papers. Mm. I mean, who knows if they're ready for ministry? They may, might be great academically and great in a dialogue and discussion, but who knows where they are with the Lord and, and all of that. And, and I think that bleeds over into the problem with just purely online church. We, we're really not 
we don't have the casual conversations before church or after church or in the halls. We, we don't have the how are you doing stuff, you know, um, especially not in a worship service. In Sunday school, at least, we have a time where we ask for prayers and praises and we, you know, pray for the people that are there and we ask how their week has been and all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, the real problem is the Gnosticizing of the church, just mm. what Kevin is talking about. We're separating the spirit over here and the body over here. And, mm. and in fact, that sort of over-spiritualized approach to worship or church is just not what the writers of the New Testament had in mind at all. Do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together, period. Mm because, I mean, they met in houses, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and so, I mean, I think we, we were already on an uphill climb towards uh, church becoming far more, you know, so heavenly minded that they're hardly any earthly good. Uh, but, but this is just exacerbating those tendencies, I'm afraid. Can I, can I jump in and ask, can I jump in and ask a question? So I, I, I'm thinking, I entirely agree with everything that you've just said. And as you're talking, I'm, I'm actually hearing sort of the response that I think some people, uh, particularly in, in online formats and stuff, would have, which is they would say something to you like, yes, that's all good and well, um, Dr. Witherington, but the people in the early church didn't have the internet. They didn't have social media. They didn't have the ability to do video church and so forth. And um, so there would be this kind of like pushback. And I, I just would love to hear, because I know you have one, I would love to hear, um, Ben, how you would actually respond to that kind of like cultural or contextualization move um, and how you see the witness of the New Testament and its relevance for us in the 21st century where we have laptops and smartphones and so forth. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that became clear when we really began online education at Asbury in 95. And we were one of the pioneers. I mean, we actually had yeah. schools from all over the country coming around and trying to take, take us as a model for how to do this in various ways, and both for better or for worse, you know, and, and that sort of thing. One of the things we learned is that introverted people, people with physical handicaps, uh, minorities, in many ways, they're much happier with online education. Now, in the early days, it was simply, you know, course material in a classroom. There wasn't a live time watching each other like through Zoom. But it wasn't that. Yeah. Right? But what we learned is that those people who in a normal social setting in a classroom with other people uh, became barracudas online because there were no inhibitors to them participating, there they were in the safety of their own home and they were going bananas with their responses and their questions and this, that, and the other because they saw the internet as a sort of wall that protected them from uh, un, unbetold social interactions or offensive smells, sights, tastes, this, that, and the other. For them, it was a great thing in various ways because they could continue to be who they were, but, but still fully participate. Well, now, if you sort of move that over to the issue of the church, 
what happens, of course, in the church, in a church like ours, which is a very formal church, I mean, you know, if the Holy Spirit were to break out in the middle of the worship service, somebody would say that's not in the bulletin. (laughs) Right? So, uh, in that kind of setting, spontaneity is not encouraged. We got to finish at 1158 so mom can get home to do the pot roast. But but the thing that I have noticed with all of this is that despite the pandemic, especially people who are more fragile are really missing the personal touch, mm-hmm. the personal interaction, the hugs, the et cetera, et cetera. And, and I mean, frankly, you can't do any of that online. So one of the things, I mean, to use your term, the incarnational side of ministry, can't be done strictly online. It yeah. just cannot be done. And, you know, it's, you know, uh, so that's one of the things I would say. I'd say use all the technology as a tool, but don't use it as a crutch to justify distancing yourself from your people in various ways and not having to deal with the messiness of pastoral counseling and this, that, and the other, and all that sort of stuff. I once went and talked to Harold Ockengay, who was then president of Gordon Conwell, you know, he was um, Park Street Church, big steeple preacher. And, uh, you know, I went to ask him some practical questions as I was doing my MDiv. And I said, well, um, you know, you're an excellent pulpiteer. Uh, What do you do about pastoral counseling? He says, I don't do that. I don't do any of that. Uh, I leave that to other people. Uh, I don't dirty my hands with that sort of stuff. And I kind of went, wow. (laughs) Okay. So actually you're a socially distanced minister who doesn't really want to deal with the messiness of people's lives as a pastor. You're, You're not really a pastor. You're just a preacher is what it boils down to. And maybe a leader of the congregation's plans and et cetera. Well, that's not a model of ministry I want modeled on the people who are leading our congregations, for sure. Um, I mean, the word preacher doesn't exist in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. The closest word is the word euangelistas, I mean, evangelist, okay? Mentioned once in Ephesians and practically demonstrated in the book of Acts. But when we're looking at the spiritual gifts, uh, preacher is not in the list. There's apostles, prophets, teachers, etc. You know, so I think Protestantism has a problem with overvaluing the so-called role of the preacher at the expense of the more holistic way that the ministry of Christ is depicted in the New Testament. And this pandemic is only making that worse uh, because it encourages ministers to say, well, I preached a good sermon this morning. They all saw it on the TV. God bless their souls. Yeah. Kevin, I'd like to, <clears throat> I'd like to kind of redirect a little bit in, in what Ben just said, you know, this kind of idea of this, of the preacher, you know, Methodists, you know, we come out of those in the Wesleyan Methodist movement, we kind of come out of 
you know, this movement of preachers, you know, we had the circuit riders in the United States, Wesley had his preachers in, in, um, in England. So how would you reconcile those kind of, both what you see in our history or what someone might read into our history and what Ben has just said? As far as the, I'm, I'm not totally getting the connection as far as what I get. Yeah, the so part. there was a very, there was an emphasis on preaching, obviously, in the, in the early Methodist movement. Sure. I'm trying to draw you out a little bit here, you know, because yeah. we had yeah. that, but it wasn't yeah. the only thing. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think I see what you're saying. I, I was actually, so as, as, as Ben was sharing, my mind was going to, um, I was surprised I hadn't had not thought of this in that context, but I was thinking about, for example, just like altar calls um, are a way in which a Protestant model of preaching is still very much embodied and connected to a congregation that has gathered and has a physical response. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in early Methodism, the, there were a variety of ways in which um, the, the proclamation of the word was, um, it, it, I, I, it's hard for me to even imagine the the inner like a Methodist preacher having the energy to um, to preach in the way that I think about the actual preaching event without a gathered community of people. Um, they're preaching yeah. to people, and the yeah. the preaching is uh, is designed and and this is one of the accusations that's brought against them is it's designed to res- to engage people's emotions. It's effective. Yeah. Um, and so it's calling for a response that is, is oftentimes scandalously embodied, mm-hmm. right? Like there are, there are physical manifestations sometimes that even make the preacher in their Oxford gown uncomfortable. Like I don't understand what's happening right now. Um, but there's a physical embodied response to the proclamation of the gospel mm-hmm. to a call for confession and repentance of sin um the 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 actual receiving of of forgiveness and justification um and the way that there's they talk about like melting times right those are those are all things that are describing like a, a an actual embodied gathering now methodists i was like arguing with myself in my head as i was saying this on the other hand john wesley does think that sharing the word in written form, his, the proclamation of the word in written form is of great value. And that's why we have the standard sermons and so forth. So he circulates in, in print um, preaching and so forth. But I can't imagine that being Methodism, right? Like that only makes sense as a response or a sort of following up of all of these other things that have happened, um, but not something that would be would be seen as an end in of itself. That, if there was a, if there was a uh, something like we're facing today, um, there, I cannot imagine in Wesley's context that his response would have been, well, just make sure everybody gets a copy of one of my sermons every week and reads it in their home with yeah. their families. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, the other part of this, I mean, just to punctuate what you're saying is the cultures that Jesus and Paul lived in were oral first, written second. Right. These were oral cultures, you know, and, and it's interesting to me, very telling that when you have the phrase logos to theu in the New Testament, not referring to the person of Christ, anytime else you have that in Acts and Paul and Hebrews, it's not referring to a text. It's referring to the preaching of the gospel. Mm -hmm. It's referring to how the oral hearing, the auditory hearing of the word of God changed people's lives in person. That's what it's referring to. And you lose that if it's all just sort of remote communication or handing somebody a sermon. And in any case, 
I mean, remember the famous conversation between George Whitfield and John Wesley, where George Whitfield says, my societies are a rope of sand, where mm -hmm. Wesley's form of Methodism is well organized to beat the devil. And there's a lot of truth to that. Wesley knew that the preaching was not enough. This is mm -hmm. why we had societies and classes and bands. Fast forward to today, what part of the church is disappearing with the younger generation? Sunday school. Sometimes replaced by a certain amount of Bible study of various kinds, BSF, various other things, you know. Well, that, from Wesley's point of view, is a danger, mm. a big danger, because worship service is not enough. You, you need to disciple people. You can't just disciple them through worshiping together. And um, so they need to gather together. And, and even after like a good revival service, I mean, when you get to the band meetings and the very first question is, what sins have you committed that you know of this week? Right? <laughs> what sins are you suspicious that you may have committed this week or are uncertain about? I mean, they were buttonholing individuals by gender-specific bands in addition to the society and class meetings. And it was all of that together with the preaching, especially the field preaching, drawing people in to the society's classes and bands, which made Methodism a vibrant movement, both in the UK and, and eventually over here as well. So, you know, we're a long way from that in Methodism today. A long yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. One of my, one of the most arresting quotes for me from Wesley is when they actually wanted to see what happened when you, this kind of goes back to the, the connection you were making to, to Wesley's Methodism and Whitfield's Methodism. The, he did, they actually did like an experiment where they tried to see what happens when you show up in a place and field preach, but then don't actually gather together the people that have preached into a society and into classes. And his like summary of that is he said, I found that those who were once awakened were now faster asleep than ever. Um, and he, his conclusion was that basically like awakening people without gathering them, them together to each other is only begetting children for the murderer. Um, yeah. So his, his image is, I mean, it's almost a shocking one, but he's basically saying you're birthing Christians so that Satan can destroy them, can kill them. And I think part of what he's saying in that is, you know, God doesn't have a plan B. So if you, if you wake people up to the reality of their need for Christ, you help them to have kind of an initial introduction to Jesus, and then you just disappear and you leave them to their own devices um, and they actually then lose the, the faith that they had and make shipwreck of the faith. They're more lost than they were before because God doesn't have a plan B like, oh, Jesus isn't interesting enough anymore. We'll look behind door number two at this thing over here. Like you've seen the plan of salvation. You've seen yeah. the God's rescue plan for your life. And if that, if you get, you sort of are introduced to that and then you decide that that's not what you want, you want something else, then you're, you're in a worse position before is, is how, is how Wesley thinks about it. And so he thinks that there's, it's, he decides it's irresponsible to preach in a kind of disembodied way that can't actually connect people together in small groups, not where he's present, but in small groups that are small enough that everyone knows who's missing immediately. You know each other well enough, you're known on a first name basis and you can, they're small enough, you recognize, oh, Kevin's not here. I need to touch base and see what's mm -hmm. going on with him and make sure he's okay. 
in Little uh, River, South Carolina, which is just over the North Carolina line into South Carolina on uh, Route 9, there's a sign about George Whitfield, which now stands next to the Little River United Methodist Church. Hmm. And it says the following, George Whitfield, there was a tavern here where George Whitfield stopped on his way to St. Simon's Island in Georgia, went into the tavern and preached and baptized a couple of people that were there. And the, uh, the loose and lascivious dancing that was going on in the tavern stopped while Whitfield preached. But when he, de- when he left, they went back to drinking their small beer and <laughs> dancing. It's a great sign. I took pictures of it. But it shows that that sort of, you know, a hit dog hollers kind of evangelism and then you're gone. Well, mm-hmm. there are real problems with that if we're talking about really organizing something that has some staying power. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I, really, I really am concerned about what happens when we come out of this pandemic, how mm-hmm. we're going to get people back together and having a, a more proper biblical and Wesleyan view of worship and fellowship and congregational responsibility and all of that. Mm-hmm. My, my next question was going to be, when would it be time for churches to reopen? But I want to rephrase that a little bit, given our conversation so far. And I want to ask, given our current circumstances, and reopening obviously is a part of this, you know, as churches reopen, but what kinds of changes do you think we need to make in our ecclesiology in order to make this transition? Um, because, you know, I think we've, I think both of you have identified, you know, some of the weaknesses of our current ecclesiology in, you know, whether you say Methodist or larger evangelical circles. Um, so what in your mind, and I think we talked about it, but I want to make, maybe get a little more explicit. What would be the changes uh, the reframing maybe a better way of saying of our ecclesiology uh, as we move forward? I think we have to mobilize the whole body of Christ for ministry. And um, I'll give you a, a practical example. John Ed Matheson, famous high steeple preacher of Methodism in Alabama, giant Methodist church in Montgomery, now long retired. But when he came to that church, he realized there had to be a way to engage the members of the congregation in doing ministry. So he just started assigning non-traditional roles for people to do. Okay, you, your ministry, every single week is to fold these bulletins. (laughs) Your ministry is going to be a moving van watcher in Montgomery, Alabama. When you see a moving van and somebody's moving into the neighborhood, you bake an apple pie, you take them the pie, you invite them to the church. Well, lo and behold, the church went from about 300 to 3,000 over the period of some years. But the principle was mobilizing every last pea, pick, and soul for ministry in some way, even if it's just a very practical thing. Okay, you're running the parking in the parking lot. You're doing this. Everybody had a job and, and they were nurtured into that job as, as a viable part of the ministry of the church. Mm. So, I mean, he really galvanized all kinds of people to do all kinds of things without asking them to do things they were totally unqualified for doing. Mm. 
right? Uh, I think we need to have a broader vision of how to get the body of Christ to, to do what needs to be done and not just say, okay, we're paying these people to do ministry. We'll let them do the ministry. That's not good enough. It's not going to be good enough going forward. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I also think that um, and from a pretty different vantage point, I think that within my community, the United Methodist Church, I think we're kind of reaping what we've sown in a variety of ways. Um, we, we made, I, I think the founders of this didn't intend it in the way that it was received, like Albert Outler, but we made um, what was intended to be an openness and a sort of broad, generous orthodoxy. We made it into an, an indifference um, to theology, um, mm. even at some point seeing theology as the problem, that theology is divisive. It's the reason that we struggle to be united and so forth. And it's, it's exactly the opposite of that. There's there's never been a church that's been united in Christ as the body of Christ without a, a coherent set of, of ways of describing what that means and what that community sort of adheres to. And so I think um, for me, part of it would be thinking about, you know, the, I, I'm still captivated by the fact that for, for decades, um, the, you know, Methodist polity books were the doctrines and discipline, um, not just the discipline. And, and I think we not only lopped off doctrines and the importance of, of, of belief for practice, but also discipline, I think, became warped in isolation from doctrine. So that discipline, it, it sounds like the punishment book. And what, what Wesley meant by doctrines and disciplines was that a Methodist is a person identified by their particularity. It's we are the community that believes these specific things and lives according to this particular way of life, these particular expectations for um, where we think the good life is, what we think people who are seeking to grow in holiness need to avoid and, and how we join together to, to practice the means of grace and so forth. Um, and I think that, that the, the way in which we, you know, my sense as, and I'm, I'm in a, a kind of have, have had probably a, a different experience than y'all have in some respects, but from my vantage point and United Methodism over the past, say, 20 years, I mean, it just feels like I'm in the wild west where, you know, everyone's doing what, what's right in their own eyes and no one has the right um, to dare to, to speak into that or seek to hold someone else accountable based on a kind of common set of standards or agreements. Uh, so it's not surprising. I mean, the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, you may know that Albert Outler was the theological advisor to the John Wesley Fellows in the early years yep. of John Wesley Fellows. Mm -hmm. And two things he said repeatedly, especially towards the end of his life, that he regretted the most is ever opening his mouth and mentioning the word quadrilateral. <laughs> because he actually came up with this term. Yep. And what he meant by it was something very different from the way people picked up that ball and ran with it mm, there. Yep. Because he meant that reason, experience, and, and uh, tradition were avenues into the central truth of scripture and vehicles out of the central truth of scripture to implement it. And he yeah. didn't mean the quadrilateral was an equilateral and, mm -hmm. and that just drove him crazy. You know, he, he went bonkers over how that had been misused, but it was used as a justification for exactly the kind of process that you're talking about. Each does what is right in their own eyes. My experience says this to heck with what the Bible says in various ways. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, when he looked back on all of that, 
I mean, honestly, what he was doing was following in the footsteps of what had happened at the beginning of the 20th century with Boston personalism mm -hmm. and, and the last theological trial that Methodism, the Methodist Episcopal Church had was of Mr. Professor Briggs, of Brown Driver Briggs fame in the early decade of the 20th century. And it, 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 you know, it, it amounted to nothing. He had been charged with heresy. It amounted to nothing. It was simply dismissed. And in the same period of time, Mr. Vanderbilt stole, despite the trust clause, stole Vanderbilt University away from the Methodist Episcopal Church and made it an independent institution. Well, those two trends <laughs> just sort of got the ball rolling. And when Albert said what he did, you know, people took this as justification for exactly what you're saying. Let's forget about the doctrines are a historical statement. They're not theological norms. They're a historical statement in the discipline. Wrong. That's not what they were intended to be in the first place, right? And so, I mean, this is why we're in the mess we are in, and probably we are facing a, a split. I, I'm a cradle Methodist. I, I've never been outside of the United Methodist tradition in my 68 years, and it's heartbreaking to see what's happening and what's likely to happen. But I'm not seeing after the pandemic that either side's going to be the better for what happens. Yeah, and part of part of my concern is that some of the some of the fault lines cut across each other, um, mm -hmm. and so the response to you know I don't, I don't know if we want to sort of open this wound or go there, but the responses to the initial conversation about online communion, for example, cut across more conservative and more theologically liberal folks. Um, and the same thing with kind of the, the sense of the importance of meeting in person um, for worship versus um, whether online was kind of sufficient for an indeterminate period of time. And um, those are, you know, there's, it's been, it's been very discouraging to me, but I think it's, you know, it's the same thing that, that you, when you have a denomination that not only does that with its doctrines and discipline, but then also says, you know, we don't have a right to discipline our theological education institutions and actually have expectations for what they teach, even though we require that people who are going to be ministers in our, our churches go to those places and be deeply formed over a course of three years or more. Um, you know, if, if you sort of have a laissez-faire attitude about it, it's not our place to tell them what to teach and so forth, um, it, it shouldn't be terribly surprising, perhaps, if sometimes you, you look at it and say, oh, we don't actually believe that, but that's, this person is deeply convinced that X is true, um, because that's how they were formed in, in the institution that um, prepared them and kind of credentialed them for, for ministry. So there's, there seem to me a, to be a variety of ecclesiological issues, um, to me, that um, call for uh, reformation in, a, in a kind of its most basic, um, but also deep and thorough sense. It's, it's desperately needed. Uh, oh, I agree. I remember a day when we met, when the John Wesley Fellows met at Emory, at Candler, and we were actually locked out of the building, even though we'd been invited to have our John Wesley Fellow Christmas conference there in a particular year. Eventually, the dean came and unlocked the building, and we had a meeting with him, and he stayed long enough to do a panel discussion. This is Dean Waits. And, uh, you know, I asked him at one point, in your mind, what should be the difference in hiring practices between a divinity school housed 
in a church-related university and say a secular department of religion in a major uh, secular university? And he said, none. I said, really? These are the people who are gonna prepare our ministers for ministry and there should be no such difference in criteria for hiring people uh, for the divinity faculty and for, uh, than for say a department of religion at a more secular university. He said none. And as the conversation developed, one of the most revealing things that came out is that so many of our Methodist uh, functionaries in our universities, colleges, and divinity schools looked over their shoulders and saw fundamentalism in the Bible Belt. Hmm. And what they wanted to do was get as far away from that as they possibly could to show their academic chops, integrity, and critical thinking. And with that as the trajectory, you know, they hired a whole bunch of kind of people, in many cases, that they shouldn't have hired in the first place. I mean, I, when I first started doing CEU events in the Southeast, minister after minister came to me and said, I went to X seminary, shall be remain nameless, and I had to let what I learned there go in one ear and out the other ear, because it certainly wouldn't preach, and it didn't pastoral counsel either. And I don't think it helped my spiritual formation to really learn all that. One of them even said, I went to my first New Testament class at X seminary. Professor came in the class and said, I don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now let's study the New Testament. <laughs> and I went, wow. <laughs> wow. But you see, this was a reaction to Southern fundamentalism in the Southern United Methodist seminaries of various sorts, mm. especially the Southern United Methodist seminaries of various sorts. And to me, that was very revealing and very telling. And it was one of the things that sparked the John Wesley Fellows program in the first place with Ed Robb. He, he used to say, as the seminaries go, so go the preachers. As the preachers go, so go the congregations. We got to have more Wesleyan evangelical scholars. Let's go. You know, that was the motive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, and I've certainly benefited from, from those beginnings. And many people that have formed me over the years have, have come out of that program and was I'm grateful to, to be associated with you all now. Well, we're glad to have you associated with us for sure. That's right. That's right. So, so Kevin and Ben, thinking about um, both from the lens of our tradition, but also the lens of the New Testament, um, regarding the kind of moral, what, what can we learn from our tradition? What can we learn from the New Testament regarding the kind of moral courage that is required for leadership in our day? Well, there's a lot of things that could be said about that, but I will just say two things. We need to be able to affirm the truth with a capital T of the gospel without equivocation, without compromise, and without apologizing for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means we actually have to believe in the truth of the gospel. We have to believe it. Believe it really is the change agent for human lives that makes them uh, followers of Christ and better human beings. We have to actually believe that. And, and, and 
we have to believe, secondly, that the lost are actually lost. Hmm. It's not the job of the church to go around saying, by the way, did you know you're all saved? It's just a matter of you realizing that's what's happened. (laughs) Well, that is definitely not the gospel John Wesley preached. (laughs) He, He even said about baptized Christians, lean not on that broken reed infant baptism. What good was it if you got prevenient grace through baptism young in your life, if you send away all the grace of baptism and you're a shiftless skunk now, you know? And so I think we have to have ministers who have fully embraced the theological truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and are prepared to share it in in season and out of season but in a winsome way. I mean, I'm not talking about being obnoxious for Jesus, but in a winsome way. And, and that, that needs to motivate us uh, beyond church politics, beyond practical problems with a pandemic. Uh, if that's not motivating us, I don't see how we're going to revive Methodism in America. Mm. Yeah, my mind goes to... Um, one of the things I've noticed over, over really, I think kind of since I was called to ministry and started seminary, um, and I'm not sure exactly when I started particularly noticing it, but somewhere along the way, I started thinking about how the, the people that are, are lifted up kind of over and over again as heroes of the faith, as great examples, one of the things that seems to me that they, they have in common is that they took, they took stands um, that in their time and place were deeply countercultural uh, and and deeply went against the grain of of the cultural context that they were in the midst of, uh, and we look back on them now with a kind of sometimes adoration, gratitude. Um, we honor them in a way that they they weren't honored in their own lives. Um, one of the ones that that has stuck out to me the most sometimes in the way that that people talk about him that that almost feels jarring is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Um, um, and, and I think that, but the, the best example is Jesus. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, that one of the, the places for me, as far as thinking about moral courage and what, what the church needs is, um, I think there needs to be greater humility within the church when you're, when you're banging a drum, that's the same drum the culture is already banging. Uh, there needs to be greater humility, I think, on part on the part of leaders of the church about how, you know, how is it that I am so certain and confident that what I'm saying in this moment is a word from the Lord um, and, and maybe not something that's been as easy for me to say and comfortable for me to say um, because the world is already embracing it and celebrating it. And that doesn't mean that those two things are never in sync with each other. I just think there, I see a need for greater sort of care and thinking through those things and asking harder questions. And the, and the flip side, I think that's in many ways more important and more difficult is a willingness to speak the hard word of truth that you know will be hated in your own cultural context or will not be received well by the world, but is, I mean, like Ben started out saying that if you're convinced of the truth of the gospel, um, and you have you've kind of made a, a decision and you've counted the cost, you know, and and you know kind of where where you stand and then you stand. Um, and, and to me, there is 
there, there, there's a witness to that in scripture that I see over and over again that over the past few years has been um, really moving to me. And it's, it's one that I think we need to be nourished by over and over again. I've, I've been sort of stuck for years reading Daniel 3, um, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I always stop at the point where they, they stand up to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, our God is willing to save us. And then they say, but even if he doesn't, we will never bow down to this idol. We'll never worship your gods. Mm-hmm. And there's this radical moment of like, there is this confidence and this, this faith claim that they make, yeah. but it's just always, it, it, the way that it's hit me is that we always make those kinds of decisions in real time. We don't get to like tell that story looking backwards and knowing, Oh yeah, of course. Like, and there's another one in the fire and everything's okay. And you know, you, you don't get the end of the sermon in real time when you're making those kinds of hard decisions, but every person to at least that, that I see lifted up and that I want to be like, and hope that my kids are becoming like, and so forth, face those moments where they thought that their step in faith and faithfulness might cost them everything. Sometimes even literally their life itself. Yep. Um, and that, and that it was the right decision to make. And I think that one of my deepest sadnesses is that I, I, there was a period of time in my life where I tried really hard to find role models and people who would come alongside me in the particular path that I was on. And I wanted them to hold me accountable to say, don't sacrifice your integrity for anything that the world can give you. And I almost never actually got that advice. The advice I almost always got was now, if you do that, you need to think about what impact this is gonna have on the possibility of you getting tenure in this place or the, you know, the impact that this could have on an appointment for you down the road. And, and I just despise that kind of scheming and planning within the church of Jesus Christ, because it's not faithful. Um, it's not what the Lord calls us to do. Um, and it, it's that, I, I just think there's this kind of like epidemic of, of practical atheism where we step outside of our faith and we say, so how do we be in control of the situation and make sure it all works out okay for us instead of, putting our full trust and confidence in the Lord and that, that faithfulness oftentimes is its own reward, even though uh, it also sometimes leads, leads to suffering. And for me, that's the, you know, it's not very, very tangible or precise in some respects, but, but that's, that's the work that I yearn to see happen in a new generation of, of leadership within, within the church is that kind of moral courage. Um, And it's difficult because it can veer towards arrogance and, and Mm. so forth so easily and so the fruit of the spirit are deeply necessary in that place too. Oh, I agree. I, I don't think we can expect moral courage from people who don't have moral integrity. Mm-hmm. I really don't think we can expect that because they may indeed affirm the apostles creed, but in regard to their ethics, they haven't seen how the theology and the ethics of the Bible and in the Wesleyan tradition co-inhere. Mm-hmm. Or they haven't, in, in, in the rush to be appealing to our increasingly post-Christian culture, they have adopted various positions on various kinds of ethical issues that have led them actually far astray from anything John Wesley would have ever said and from what the Bible says about these kinds of issues. And they have covered that over with the gloss of, well, this is the loving thing to say and to do. And, you know, I don't think we're going to get 
moral renewal uh, and theological revival and actual Holy Spirit holiness action in the church with leaders who are prepared to compromise the ethics of the gospel over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's letting the church do the world's work for them, <laughs> you know, and, and that's not a good thing. And it, it's, it's profoundly disturbing. Um, uh, uh, somehow the church is the last one on the food chain to know what in fact uh, are the cultural t- trends and which way the wind is blowing. And then when we discover which way the wind is blowing, well, we want to go with the flow. And, you know, that's certainly not the way Paul was. Look at his catalog of trials and tribulations he had, right? I mean, how many ministers do you know that have ever been stoned, thrown in jail, et cetera, et cetera? Well, certainly Martin Luther King was. But not too, many, not too many United Methodists I know of that uh, followed that path. And, and, and in fact, it led to serious personal consequences in various mm-hmm. ways. And, and to me, as a lifelong United Methodist, you know, uh, one of the things I found most discouraging was after I'd come out of my doctor work, done my PhD work, I mean, I actually had a dean of one of our United Methodist seminaries, which I will not name, come to me and say, over my dead body, will I ever hire somebody like you? And I thought, well, that's broad-minded. <laughs> but, you know, when I reflected more about it, it's because I represented a very traditional form of um, sola scriptura and Wesleyan theology that he was miles from. <laughs> And he, he didn't like what he saw. I mean, he may have seen him, his younger self in the mirror, but, but he didn't like it then. And, you know, I'm afraid that Methodism itself has, has, it, has caused itself so many heartaches and problems by not nurturing all kinds of persons into ministry, into teaching, into all that sort of stuff. And we're paying the price for it now. We, we really are just paying the price for it at this point. So Kevin and Ben, uh, this will be our final word. And I, this is not a question that I gave you in advance, but I think it's one that you were both very capable, capable of responding to. And that is, what, is gives, what gives you hope? What gives you hope about the moment that we're in or the moments that are to come? Well, for me, there's, there, I, I have hope and there the Lord has, you know, he never, he never leaves, leaves us without witnesses. Uh, right. The Lord has raised up. Um, uh, uh, I, I see faithful Christian leaders in different parts of, of my church and the broader body of Christ and um, people who are not bowing the knee, um, who are becoming people of, of deep, serious um, spiritual practices their souls are being formed and shaped in deep ways and they are really pouring themselves out in the best sense of the word for the sake of the gospel of jesus christ um i I see that in uh particularly i'm thinking about a a handful of um, pastors that i've been able to stay in touch with over the years since i started my phd and and there's there's faithful christian ministry happening um 
sounds like a Sunday school answer, but the, 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 and the deepest reason for my hope is that, I mean, I, I, I know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and it is the sole source of my hope. Um, it is, it's the reason that I'm living and it's the reason that I try to make decisions and I, I, I am prone to stumble, but, um, but I still have that, that just deep confidence that God's not done with us yet. Um, Jesus is, has, has sent the spirit and is with us and um, is, is guiding and directing the church. And that when, when the church repents and seeks to turn back, God is, is, is quick to forgive. Um, he's merciful. He's good. Um, and um, so I still have the same hope that, that Christians throughout the centuries have had um, in just the basic, simple gospel of Jesus Christ and its, its ability to save and rescue in, in radical, deep, life-changing ways. I, I agree with all of that, and I'll just end by telling a story. When uh, Maxie Dumlin called me up in 1994 and said, Ben, you need to get yourself down here to Wilmore, Kentucky. There are more United Methodists here you can train for ministry than you can shoot fish in a barrel. So hurry up and get yourself down here. And, you know, the advice I got from United Methodist friends uh, in North Carolina, where I came from, and other places, and some high steeple preachers and district superintendents, and a bishop or two is, well, if you go to Asbury, it's a black hole. That's the end of your academic career. You'll never come out of there again. You'll not ever get another job. Hmm. You see, I didn't believe that because I believed that the Lord was the one who was working the providence of God. Hmm. So I went, and this was in 95. It's before I had a cell phone. So I'm still BC in 1995, right? <laughs> and, and, and so I, I went off on sabbatical in the spring of 1995 because I had one coming to me at the end of my time in Ashland. And I was very honored that. I was uh, made a fellow of Robinson College in Cambridge, and I went to do write my Mark commentary. While I was gone, Leander Keck, a Methodist, who was then dean of Yale Divinity School, called my office phone in Wilmore and said, Ben, we'd like you, we know you've gone to Asbury, forget about that. We'd like you to consider, consider coming and taking a, a professorship of New Testament here at Yale Divinity School. Now, I didn't find out about this till I got back in May and checked my voice messages <laughs> in my office. And by then, they had hired Harry Attridge, very fine scholar, has done a good job there. But, but what that little story showed me is that it's God I should place my hope in, not mm -hmm. the so-called practical wisdom of United Methodist bigwigs. Mm -hmm. And that in truth, it's, it's the gospel and the providence of God that's going to settle these issues because Jesus is not going to let the gates of hell prevail against his church. Mm. The genuine church, even if it has to go through fires, will survive. And our tradition is part of the genuine church. And so mm. I am hopeful because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that, I think, is what gets me up in the morning and keeps me going with the job I've got. Mm. Well, Ben and Kevin, thank you so much for the conversation today. I think people will find it uh, both challenging and encouraging, and uh, we really appreciate your time. 
Thank you. You are welcome. Good to see you, Kevin. Blessings. Well, you too. This concludes today's episode of the John Wesley Fellows Podcast. This episode was produced by Colby Reed, music by Dion Key via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is a production of a Foundation for Theological Education and the Wesley Fellowship Program. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.